Okay, can I, can I call you all to order? Um, we're on to the third session now um, on uh, economic growth, economic science and morality, which is a very weighty set of subjects. My name is Edwina Morton. I'm a former journalist. I used to work for The Economist newspaper, and before that was an academic. But I am not an economist, so I look forward to this session. I will learn a great deal. And we have three extremely uh, well-qualified panellists to talk. Uh, Diane Coyle, former journalist too, um, for The Independent, former advisor to the Treasury and now an author and consultant. Uh, Donald Hay, an academic and author, author of a book, Economics Today, A Christian Critique. And Edmund Newell, also academic and author, uh, author of a book with the enticing title ethics and investment banking. So I will now sit down and let the panellists speak in the order in which they appear on the programme, and then we will move on to the Q&A afterwards. Thank you. Thank you for the introduction. It's a real pleasure to be here today, and um, it was a real pleasure to read the book as well, which obviously struck a chord with a lot of people. And I thought I'd shape my comments around some distinctions that are important if we're going to find our way to shaping an economy that is obviously the one that so many readers want. And that means an economy that is about things getting better and not worse, an economy that is sustainable in a broad sense, not just the environmental sense, but so, uh, socially sustainable as well, and a fairer economy. And economists want this too. I think I'm here to represent the grad-grind tendency among economists, and I shall try to oblige in my remarks. Um, but economists want all these good things as well, and in fact the very concept of efficiency is about not wasting resources. So the first distinction I want to talk about is one that I think needs to be made clearer, and that's both in the book and in life in general. And that's the distinction between GDP and economic growth and economic welfare or well-being. And these tend to get merged together in discussion. GDP is a measure of marketed economic activity. And economics is very clear that this is distinct from social welfare or, or well-being. Although having said that, a lot of economists and most politicians and commentators talk as if it's the same thing and that talking about an increase in growth is equivalent to talking about an increase in well-being. Critics of GDP and growth emphasise the way it, it greatly overstates welfare. So they'll talk about um, the cost of crime prevention, the cost of pollution, the environmental sustainability issues, the fact that we spend on advertising, that GDP goes up if there's a disaster and the construction costs go up afterwards. And uh, they, they would therefore find some measure that deducts all those things from the measure that we conventionally use, economic growth, GDP. Um, and that's all true, but the welfare gap actually goes both ways. There are lots of ways that well-being increases that are not captured in GDP either. And one example I like to give is a TV programme in 2000 called The 1900 House, where a nice, normal, middle-class family was told to lead their lives as if they were the same kind of family 100 years earlier. They had to uh, do all the wash heat up the water for the washing by hand, do it by hand, cook all the meals from scratch. But the reason the wife, of course, who did all of the work, almost wanted to quit the experiment wasn't that she had to heat up water to do the weekly wash. It was that, that shampoo hadn't been invented and she couldn't get her hair clean. 
And growth is really all about all these innovations, all these new products and services. Shampoo is a trivial example. Even trivial examples can have large welfare benefits. There's a, a famous paper by Jerry Hausman at MIT that estimates the consumer surplus from introducing the apple cinnamon flavour of Cheerios. And it's a very large number, hundreds of millions of dollars. But of course there are much more important innovations as well. And the figure for GDP greatly understates the well-being effect of all that innovation in our life, all that technical progress. And this is, in fact, an old debate from the 1930s. Uh, Simon Kuznets is often described as the father of GDP. Actually, he was bitterly opposed to using that concept. He wanted a welfare measure. And the same debates about the wedges, positive and negative, between GDP and welfare that happened in the 1930s are now being revived again in the debate we're having about what's enough, what's enough growth. And... Um, Economic growth, I think, is important for welfare. It's, it's correlated with well-being measures. And it's, it tracks the footprints left in our lives by all of these innovations. And that's from the trivial, the cereal flavours, the socks that don't smell when, you, when your feet are sweaty, but also the medicines and the low-cost cataract operations that only take an hour as an outpatient and the smartphones that are connecting Kenyans to the world, world's libraries. So um, we need to keep that distinction very clear but I think we also need to be clear that GDP growth is actually correlated with welfare and well-being because GDP growth is about that process of innovation. The second distinction is one that I think is um, overdrawn, and that's the distinction between needs and wants. And the book says the material conditions of the good life already exist and that nothing has improved since 1974. Now, I think that's absurd, I'm afraid. A lot's improved since 1974. Life expectancy at birth in this country has gone up from 72 to 81. We've seen the uh, introduction of the internet and the World Wide Web. No cars had catalytic converters in 1974, and now they all do. In that year, only 8% of households had central heating. I'm sorry, uh, um, central heating them is just taking off, and now only 8% don't have central heating. We don't need central heating to stay alive, but it's taken as a, a key poverty indicator because the physical conditions in which people live affects their health, their relationships, the development of children, and homes without central heating are now classed as non-decent. People are much more likely to be ill and uh, uh, suffer um, dysfunctional family relationships. We don't need the World Wide Web, of course, but a poll conducted in 2010 among 27,000 people in 26 countries, found that 80% regarded internet access as a fundamental right. So the boundary between needs and wants actually shifts a lot over time. Mobile phones were taxed as a luxury in 1991, and they're now regarded as a necessity in Oxford and Manchester, but also in Mumbai. And the well-being effect of what was seen as a yuppie innovation is enormous in developing countries. It connects people to jobs and incomes that weren't there before. And it has enabled people in a country like Kenya to save money when they couldn't before because holding cash was insecure. So um, this, is, this shifting boundary between needs and wants reflects real improvements in well-being and real changes in what are the necessities of life. And I think wants in this sense actually are unlimited we don't want 100 expensive handbags or Ferraris, but our wants do increase and I think are, in that sense, insatiable. And the book, I think, often speaks of increased wants as more of the same thing, but that's absolutely not what economic growth 
mainly consists of. Economic growth is mainly new things. And, of course, there's a psychology of adaptation that's very well known, and we quickly get used to a situation. But I think it's not relevant that just the basic needs of life are met. The third distinction is one about where the market should end and this unease that people have about um, the apparent prioritisation of money above everything else through using markets. And the book says, uh, I took this personally, the chief barrier to realising the good life is the discipline of economics. I stand accused. I think it's partly a misapprehension um, about how economics thinks about markets. In um, a lot of economics, markets are specific institutions, not not an abstract idea. The market for tea bags and the market for accountants and the market for radio spectrum are entirely different things with different institutional structures, different personal relationships, and um, the kind of abstract markets that get talked about in so much um, social science are actually not the kinds of markets that economists work with day to day. Are there areas where markets shouldn't go? I think the answer is clearly yes, there, there are areas. And one good example, when fairness trumps the efficiency of the market mechanism, is wartime and rationing. And of course, the, uh, I suppose, conventional economics approach is to say um, that's a very bad idea because you get black markets and that has adverse consequences. I don't think that matters. I think there are situations where fairness definitely trumps efficiency. But that's sometimes debatable. Uh, If you've read Michael Sandel's book, he talks about the example of um, paying people to stand in line for free tickets for the plays that are put on in Central Park in New York and what a bad thing that is. I'm not sure why that's different from paying people um, for their time when they babysit for your children if you want to go out to the cinema. (coughs) I'm not sure that that boundary is as clear as it's sometimes described. And there are areas where I think there's valid room for debate, reselling concert tickets, for example, ticket touting. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a fuzzy boundary, and the area of repugnant markets is a really interesting way to think about this. These are uh, markets where people have a gut instinct that money should not be involved because the values are non-monetary. So um, buying and selling kidneys is a classic example. But an economist called Al Roth has devised markets for kidneys that don't use money. And I think that helps distinguish between um, the use of money as the measure of value, and I think all of us have strong intuitions that that's not the right measure of value in some areas, and the strength of markets as a decentralised mechanism for um, matching supply and demand and using information uh, to get efficient outcomes, efficient in the sense of using resources well and sustainably. And that's very different from markets as turbocharged machines of profit, very often rigged in the favour of um, a few individuals. So I found myself both fundamentally in agreement with the book and fundamentally in disagreement with it. Um, In agreement because we do need to distinguish growth from well-being. They're different, and well-being matters. And we need to direct policies better towards well-being as well as towards growth. Growth is a means to that end and not an end in itself. And I profoundly agree with that. But I found myself fundamentally in disagreement with it in some ways too. And um, perhaps if I just end with a few reflections on the robots issue, that might 
set it out more clearly. So Robert started by um, talking about inequality and the way that the drive for economic efficiency through mechanisation, through automation, is um, exacerbating inequality and creating this prospect of, of, of great joblessness. Now, technology certainly plays a big part in inequality. It rewards some skills and it competes with other skills. So people who've got the first set of skills are doing much better and people who've got the second set of skills are doing much worse. Although that's overstated, actually. It's much worse in the US than anywhere else. Perhaps they're just further ahead. But the consequences of this are not inevitable. There's a kind of techno-determinism about a lot of this debate. I don't see the robot standing around in cocktail parties in Davos drinking champagne. And I think of it as a kind of tide washing over a set of social and political institutions. Um, The outcomes depend on how those institutions shape the forces. It's about law and institutions and politics that they determine the division of the rewards. Um, And I must say, academics have got much more interested in the threat of robots to to living standards once the robots started encroaching on on academic life. But they've been, of course, in manufacturing for a generation already, and that's already happened. What do we need to do? Well, education is the standard answer, and it's an important answer, and um, we're doing it all wrong because we're still educating people to compete with robots and not, uh, not complement them. We start, need to start treating non-cognitive skills as not second-class skills. Um, we've also got an economy whose institutions are rigged in favour of very rich people in the financial sector, and that needs addressing. Um, we've got a world economy where um, great swathes of, of illegal mafia money are washing around, causing um, inequality. I see no willingness among the authorities to tackle that properly, but that needs to be done. The ownership of assets is really important, and uh, part of that is the ownership of intellectual property assets. We have absurd intellectual property laws that will mean that J.K. Rowling's heirs inherit all the income from that estate for 70 years after her death. This is not at all what intellectual property protection is meant to do in an economy. It's meant to incentivise new inventions and not provide massive economic rents to old inventions. I think um, taxing robots is a really bad idea, actually. Um, It prevents firms from growing profitably, and it will lead to a poorer economy. Economies that are much more automated have a much higher level of incomes per capita. Um, So you need to tackle the distribution question, I think, and not the choice to use use robots or not. So our our task is actually to think about the institutions and not just um, attack the economists to think about what, what institutional reforms, what economic reforms and political reforms, and I hope we'll get on to discussing the politics of this later on today, uh, which among those will tackle the inequality question. Um, I could say a lot more, but I think I'd better stop. Thank you. How times change. When I, um, I trained as an economist in the 1960s, and in those days we used to go to sherry parties... If you said at a sherry party that you were trained to be an economist, or you were an economist, you were treated with awe. Now, of course, uh, you're slightly better than a banker, but only slightly. Now, what I'm going to do this morning is to attempt to defend the indefensible. That is, I'm going to attempt to defend 
economics as it's currently practiced. Now, <clears throat> I'm sure that the Skidelskis didn't mean this, but I have to say, as I read uh, their extremely uh, stimulating book, I became extremely defensive because it seemed to me it was actually telling me that I had spent at least 35, almost 40 years of my life um, doing something which was indefensible, that is, practicing economics. Um, and, for example, they say, page 92, this is the paperback, paperback edition, economics is not just any academic discipline, it is the theology of our age, the language that all interests high and low must speak if they are to win a respectful hearing in the courts of power. And maybe I'm too sensitive, but I did feel, actually, I was being put on the spot at that point. It wasn't personal. I'm sure it wasn't. No, no, no. But I, I do take these things very personally. Um, what I really want to do is to say, well, what useful things might economists do? And the first thing I think that economists do is that they do actually help us to understand economic behaviour. Now, the, the great bogey is usually the utilitarian model of economic behaviour. But I think it comes uh, as quite a surprise to a lot of people that actually by the middle of the 20th century that had given way to what's called revealed preference, rational choice theory and then game theory in the second half of the 20th century. And preferences and rational choice is what it's all about. It's not about utility anymore. Now, you can, of course, critique the rational choice model as a model of human behaviour. Uh, and there are various really interesting cr critiques. Uh, I think the one by Elster, where he basically says, look, what you're doing is you're inferring from behaviour to preferences given the choice set, but you have no access to the mental machinery. So we don't actually know what goes on in people's brains. Um, and the other thing which he comes up with, which I think is very important, is if you've ever gone online to try and find, as it were, the best price for a refrigerator, uh, what you discover is that unless you have some prior idea of what the price distribution of refrigerators out there is, you've no idea how much search to do. Now, of course, for an economist, that's the point at which you give up. Um, how, do you, how do you decide how many searches to do? I mean, do you have some kind of coin-flipping uh, thing? Uh, I'll accept, I won't accept each time round. How do you do it? Anyway, so there's a problem about the amount of information that's available for accurate definition of the choice set. Secondly, um, I think rational choice theory is often um, criticised because it, has, it seems to have a very thin sense of rationality. Um, whereas I think Sen is, and Sen, Sen says about this, rational choice theory requires that people choose rationally if and only if they intelligently pursue their self-interest and nothing else. But I, he then goes on to say, actually, we can have a broader definition Rationality of choice is primarily a matter of basing our choices on reasoning we can reflectively sustain if we subject them to critical scrutiny. In other words, rationality doesn't have to be narrowly self-interested. It can encompass a wide range of preferences and interests, such as generosity, sympathy and commitment. Having said all that, 
I have to confess that the economist's model of human motivations is extremely thin. To use the theological analogy, it's fallen human nature and it's not in Margot Dei. The se- the, uh, just to, to complete this, I think it's true to say that there are issues about the applicability of the rational choice model uh, that economists have. In my view, it's a pretty reasonable approach to the demand for potatoes or carrots or even the demand for a financial asset. But I don't think it's good enough for understanding marriage, divorce and altruism, for example. And, of course, economists have gone into those areas uh, big time. If I had a lot of time, I'd talk a little bit about the role of economics in public policy. But let me move on to something which may be slightly more contentious, and that's the idea of markets and the good life. Now, if I were a paid-up economic liberal, I would say this. I would say, there's no telos in markets. Resources float where it turns are highest. Workers shift from lower paid to higher paid unemployment. Firms adjust offerings and goods and services to where consumer demand is highest. And there's a key role, as we've heard from Diana, for innovation. In other words, what they would say is the outcomes in markets reflect societal preferences. Markets do not create preferences. Now, in the book, there is a whole section which has this lovely idea of do markets inflame insatiability? Let me just read a quote. Modern capitalism inflames through every pore the hunger of consumption, the hunger for consumption. Consumption has become the great placebo of modern society, our counterfeit reward for working irrational hours. So there's some sort of suggestion here that just by existing, markets inflame insatiability. And pages 33 to 42 of the uh, paperback uh, edition, um, we have all this stuff about positional goods, status-enhancing goods, wants created by culture, etc., etc. About the only... All of those, though, actually refer to societal preferences for things like status. So it's not that the market creates it, it's actually that people have those particular preferences which they bring in. Now, I will allow advertising as one possibility, as an area where it is clear that markets do change things. But actually, I'm not sure it would be terribly difficult uh, to deal with that kind of advertising if we really wanted to. Now, of course, markets do have unintended consequences. We've seen that in financial markets, for example, so we have asset-based securities, e.g. the securitization of mortgages, which are good because they spread risks for investors, but they're also bad. Why? Because they created opportunities for financial wizardry, which contributed to the collapse of financial markets. And then, of course, there's the famous example of the Israeli crash. Does people know about the Israeli crash? The Israeli crash is, is very simple. Uh, there was this crash in Israel where the parents turned up late to collect the children. So an economist whose child was, uh, presumably he was on the committee that ran the crèche, said, what we need to do is to fine them. So he brought in a, they brought in a series of fines for people uh, who collected their children late. The problem was that actually the problem got worse. Why? Because you'd given a price 
to collecting your child late. And for many of the people who had children in the creche, it was worth paying that price. So what happened was that what previously had been a kind of honourable thing, you don't arrive late to pick up your child, it's not fair on the child, it's not fair on the people who run the creche, suddenly becomes just another thing which is marketised. And so uh, people do uh, as they tend to do, the sensible thing. If you can earn more money for that extra hour, then you're going to have to pay in a fine, but you work the extra hour. You don't care about the people who run the creche. <coughs> so what would, what would an economic liberal say? An economic liberal would say, markets allow each person to pursue their own telos in life. You want to be a hedonist? Go ahead, you can afford it. You want to follow the command of Jesus to the rich young man, still all you have, give to the poor and come follow me? You can. It is true that the Sigidelskis say collective participation is essential to all the most, all but the most solitary visions of human fulfilment, and they give the example of someone who wants to play bull. Uh, the answer is, of course, you need somebody else to play with, just as you need somebody else to play chess with. But we don't need everybody playing bulls. We don't need everybody playing chess. We just need enough people out there with whom we can relate. I simply can't see but maybe I lack imagination, why groups with very different visions, very different views of uh, culture and how they want to live their lives, why they can't coexist in a market economy. And indeed, some might argue they already do in Britain. On the whole, the economists I know are extremely reluctant to be prescriptive about the characteristics of the good life. I welcome that because I'm not sure that I know that number of good economists. Well, I use the word good economists, if you see what I mean. Um, actually, what happens is economists tend to focus on other things. They tend to focus on issues of poverty, unemployment, inequality, justice and international trade. These are big themes. I would much rather that we kept economists on that than that they started to do anything about the good life. And finally, a question which is not really a serious question, but it's a question for the, the Skidelskis. If I was talking purely as an economic liberal, I would say this. If the idea of the good life, as described by the Skidelskis, became the mainstream in our culture, which actually seems pretty unlikely, but suppose it did, would the market actually thwart it or sustain it? Donald's opening uh, gambit reminded me that I once uh, visited a religious community and someone said to me there, uh, what do you do? And I said, an economist. He said, we'll pray for you. <laughs> so it turned out later that he'd misheard me and thought I said I was a communist. But uh, <laughs> there we go. Um, when Nigel framed this uh, session, he asked us, he suggested we focus on a particular question. Um, can we really abandon economic growth as a measure of progress, and that's what I'd like to just home in on that particular uh, question. And I guess the progress in the sense that Nigel uh, posed that question we've been discussing today implies improving our experience of life, and most of us, I would suggest, say that, would say that progress in this sense is uh, about things like better health, both physical and mental, enhanced relationships with family and friends, 
more meaningful work, and we discussed the, uh, the reasons uh, about that earlier on, uh, greater freedom to do the things that we can enjoy, uh, and so on and so forth, greater security from the things that can harm us, all the sorts of things um, that Robert and Edward have listed as contributing to the good life, um, perhaps barring meaningful work, which we discussed earlier. And I guess that few of us would say that our experience of life is enhanced simply by increasing income or simply by the amount or value of the goods and services that we produce uh, or consume. And um, in 1997, Charles Handy, uh, in his book um, The Hungry Spirit, did the same sort of exercise that Keynes did in the 1930s. And he, he wondered what life might be like in 100 years' time. And at that time, uh, in this country, economic growth was going at 3% a year, and it looked like that might continue. So he speculated if that happened for a century, what would happen? and uh, noted that we'd be able to consume 16 times uh, as many goods as we could uh, uh, now in 1997. And he said, well, what would we be spending it on? And the fear was that we might end up spending it on, on shindogu, uh, the Japanese word for useless gadgets. That's the, that was what might happen if we go down that route. Economic growth, at best, can only really be a partial measure uh, of progress. And speaking more from an economic history point of view, it's worth remembering um, a bit about how economic growth has become a concept. It's actually a relatively recent concept, and it's largely the product of the development of national income statistics, national income accounting by Keynes and by other economists in the interwar period. If you go down to the basement of the Radcliffe camera and look at the parliamentary papers, you can see a very interesting history unfolding. So if you look in the late, 19, late 18th century, when, when these parliamentary papers emerged, they're just a couple of volumes. By the early 20th century, there's, there, there are rows and rows and rows of them. And if you look inside them, you'll see it's the collection of data on all sorts of economic uh, information. It provides the, the, the material for us to start to understand about the size of the economy. And that, of course, has a great use. Um, Keynes and others wanted it to, to, to measure these things for macroeconomic policies, dealing with issues going on in the 1930s, looking at inflation, uh, unemployment, and so on and so forth. A really very useful tool. Um, and, of course, the natural tendency is then to compare things year on year. And so we start to see the concept of, of growth coming in. And those people at the time realised the limitations of this. We've already heard Kuznets mentioned uh, by Diana earlier on, and just want to say what Kuznets said to the uh, US Congress in 1934. I quote, he said, The welfare of a nation can scarcely be inferred from a measurement of national income. And he reiterated the point in 1962, by which time the concept of economic growth had really taken off. And uh, he said... Distinctions must be kept in mind between quantity and quality of growth, between its costs and returns, and between the short and the long run. Goals for more growth should specify more growth of what and for what. And of course, that has triggered off, those sorts of comments have triggered off a lot of work um, by social scientists um, about the wider implications of, of, uh, of society. Uh, and, and the relationship between different disciplines and, econ and economics. So we get this whole uh, industry of, uh, of looking at, uh, at well-being that's come out of it. 
because for a lot of that research has shown that there's a very complex set of relationships between uh, economic growth and non-income dimensions uh, of what we would now uh, class together as, as well-being. And uh, those complex relationships, sometimes it's positive, sometimes, as Diane's pointed out, sometimes it's negative. It's all very, very complex. So what that's all been leading to is the development of serious efforts to have a wide-ranging set of metrics on well-being uh, that we can start to get a, a much broader concept of, of how uh, economics is working in society. So, for example, um, there's the project uh, EU, the EU project Beyond GDP, an uh, initiative that began in 2009 to develop indicators that are as clear, I quote, as clear and as appealing as GDP, but more inclusive of environmental and social aspects of progress. They use the word progress. It's a project that came out of the Sarkozy Commission, um, and it, I quote the Commission, it says, those attempting to guide the economy and our societies are like pilots trying to steer a course without a reliable compass. The decisions they and we as individuals make depend on what we measure, how good our measurements are, and how our measures are understood. And, of course, that has influenced others. So in this country, uh, we've had an emphasis on looking at trying to develop measures of well-being. And now if you look on the uh, website of the uh, Office of National Statistics, you will discover uh, a wheel showing uh, uh, measures of well-being, of which real net national income per head... Uh, is only one of 41 measures of well-being. And the economics uh, is only one of 10 dimensions of well-being. And those dimensions include things like health, relationships, and other elements of the good life that we've been discussing uh, this morning. Should economic growth be decoupled from progress? Well, yes and no. Thinking broadly beyond our society, if someone is living in, in, a, in poverty, then rising income could make a very significant difference to that person's quality of life. Well, on a macro scale, this takes us into the world of development and looking at countries where people are living in extreme poverty and where increasing income is absolutely vital for improving the welfare uh, and, and addressing issues of deprivation. But there's always a caveat with that. And the caveat is that not everyone can benefit from it. Just to quote um, some research from the Growth Commission, chaired by Nobel laureate Michael Spence in 2008, and that looked at uh, a range of countries that had had high levels of growth, a 7% growth for over 25 years, and looking at the impact of that growth. And they note that after 25 years of high sustained growth, they gave some horrible examples in Indonesia, 28% of children under five were still underweight and 42% were stunted. In Botswana, 30% of the population were malnourished uh, and in Oman, women earn less than 20% of male earnings. So growth is not enough. There is much more that has to go along, alongside that. However, there is um, evidence that as countries become wealthier there are diminishing returns uh, as incomes increase, what Sir John Hicks, the economist, called the law of marginal significance of economics. 
In other words, once, a, once a, a moderate level of wealth is achieved, then additional wealth makes little or no difference to well-being. And it's very really interesting, going right back to the early foundation of years of Christianity, the first Christian theologian really looks systematically at this, Clement of Alexandria, in his treaty, Who is the Rich Man That Shall Be Saved, argued strongly that moderate wealth is good for the soul because it relieves anxiety, but that excessive wealth is destructive. So a couple of thousand years on, um, social science is, is strengthening the, that, uh, that view of Clement. And studies of the UK, the US, Japan and no doubt other countries indicate that although real incomes increased significantly since the 1950s, our perception of well-being has not increased. That is, that we do not perceive ourselves as being happier or more fulfilled than that we were 60 years ago, despite all the things that have happened, which, of course, um, uh, have improved lives in many ways and what we might call progress. I think there's a really interesting uh, issue about how we perceive ourselves. Just one example of uh, satiability, which um, uh, Robert and Ed would uh, write about. In Bhutan, the country of Bhutan, which takes well-being very seriously, they've, in, they've, they've put the principle of enough is enough into their national policies. So they use uh, well-being indicators to frame national uh, policy, and they put a sufficiency cut-off um, that establishes how much of anything is enough. Um, when you get above uh, that level, then it doesn't add to well-being. And I quite literally uh, have the T-shirt for that, which I'm rather proud of having. But it's very interesting that a country like Bhutan uh, is using um, gross national happiness as an index. That'd be something very interesting to talk about. We haven't actually talked about uh, happiness, but it may be a, a slight red herring on the well-being issue. So, what if we did decide to abandon uh, um, growth uh, and strive for the good life? What would the challenges be in all that? Well, I think there are at least two big challenges. The first we've touched on earlier on, and uh, it's interesting that that Robert um, has sort of latched onto it earlier on as well, um, as something which perhaps could have been expanded in in the book, which is uh, inequalities. Because perhaps the main driver behind the pursuit of growth is that we are obsessed by relativities, and we do always compare ourselves with others, whether it's the Joneses next door or, or with other countries. Um, and what does appear to affect well-being considerably is how we do perceive ourselves in relation to others, and that relativities are at least, or if not more important, than absolutes when it comes to well-being. And that the more equal societies are, the more content people tend to be, because perhaps they're not comparing themselves with with such, uh, over such greater margins. So perhaps then an important element of progress should be to reduce levels of inequality. And the second and related challenge is uh, the way we think about ourselves uh, and others. If we, because we do place so much store on how much we earn and consume, the natural tendency is for us to judge ourselves, our own worth, and the worth of others uh, on materialistic criteria. But if we're able to place greater value on intangible things that make up the good life, then maybe we could be released from the grip of materialism that does seem to be so closely associated with the craving for more and more. 
And that takes us into what also been discussed this morning has come out as a theme, which is about the importance of education. Educating uh, people and ourselves to think more about ourselves and others, not uh, constantly wanting to compare ourselves and compete, but actually educating ourselves uh, in the good life. So, returning to that question at the beginning um, about uh, progress. Well, progress, I don't think, can be reduced to something as basic as increasing income. It's far more complex than that. But for those living in poverty, whether in this country or elsewhere, increasing income may well contribute significantly to improving people's lives. But it appears that those living at higher levels of income, it becomes less and less uh, significant. And that progress for rich and poor alike should focus on the things that improve our experience of life. And overconsumption is certainly not on that list, but dealing with inequalities certainly should be. And finally, that we must learn not to want to keep up with the Joneses, but in increasingly not only the Joneses, but the Chans, the Kumars and, uh, and others as we live in our globalised society. Thank you. Well, thank you very much indeed. That was a very rich discussion. Anything that go, can go from the value added to, from cinnamon-flavoured breakfast cereal through uh, the attack on cherished civic values from a hapless Israeli crash to the constitution of Bhutan has to have a lot to say for itself. Um, I'm going to, uh, Nigel's advice, follow exactly the same patterns before. So if the authors would like to pick up on any of those points, please do, and then we'll go to the more general ones. Um, yeah, I'd just like to respond quickly um, to um, Diana's comments on the, the effects of technology on well-being. Um, Thank you for that. Um, we, 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 we're not denying, of course, that many technological innovations have had a, uh, a, a, a great effect on well-being. Um, that's clearly true. <coughs> For examples, air conditioning in very hot parts of the world um, have, have clearly improved quality of life. Um, anesthetics have improved the quality of life of uh, many people. Um, but it's not clear to me that all technological innovation has such a clear-cut effect. Um, I'm not convinced that mobile phones have improved the quality of life. Um, yeah. Now, yes. <laughs> I, well, of, course it, of course it's true that were we suddenly now to be deprived of mobile phones, we would be very frustrated. We've become used to them. This is the phenomenon of adaptation that you talked about. Um, but the relevant question is, before the invention of mobile phones, did we feel their lack? Were we, you know, did we go around in a state of frustration because we couldn't get in touch with each other instantaneously whenever we wanted? I, I, I didn't, um, and I'm, I'm not convinced that most people did. So I think that's, that's the relevant question we have to ask. Uh, prior to the invention, uh, was something missing in people's lives that they were aware of? And, uh, so I, I think we have to distinguish different technologies in this way. Just one more point. Um, uh, yeah, uh, Donald, um, uh, you're, uh, I think you, you, um, 
You phrased your comments in, 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 in sort of the conditional. If, if I were an economic liberal, I would say that. So I'm not, I'm not quite sure how to take that. Um, but yeah, I think that's I mean, you, you were suggesting that markets, um, well, this is the conventional view, that markets are neutral mechanisms that allow individuals to, to realise their preferences. They don't shape those preferences. Um, in our book, we, we, we disagree. We, we, we think that markets do shape preferences simply by pressing them into a market mould. Um, they tend to turn all preferences into consumer preferences, um, preferences that can be satisfied by the market. And many of our preferences aren't of this sort. Um, they can't be pressed into a market mould. Um, political preferences, for instance. Um, you know, we would prefer to live in a society of a certain sort. We prefer to live in this kind of society rather than that kind of society. And that's not the sort of preference that can easily be satisfied through the market. Um, and the example of Boole that you raised, I think we were influenced by the fact that we were living in a, uh, or holidaying in a, in a small French town um, while we were writing that part of the book, where, you know, as in many small French towns, there's, uh, you know, uh, people play boule in the town square. And, um, Clearly, this wasn't just a case of a, a few individuals getting together and thinking, well, I, I like playing ball, you like playing ball, let's, let's set up a ball club. Um, this, this preference was you know, given public support. Um, it, it was embodied in the very layout of the town. Um, and we found that very attractive. Um, now, of course, it wasn't imposed on people. If, if you didn't want to play ball, you, you didn't have to. Um, so this would be an example of non-coercive paternalism, uh, but still we thought it was a, a, you know, a nice thing that the, 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 the town as a whole encouraged a particular sporting activity in this way. Didn't have to be bull, of course, but um, uh, so I think, and, and I think many people in that town would have they would have had a preference to live in a town of this sort where bull was publicly encouraged rather than just a preference for playing ball. Um, and those are different. So that's, I think, uh, where the market can distort preferences. Yeah, um, uh, I, I did teach in the economics department for five years, so though, though I may not understand economics, um, I do understand the defences economics uses justified existence. <laughs> um, I think... I think what, what's going on always, and I won't deal with detailed points here, we can come to those later, is that economics always tries to insulate itself against the defects of the market economy. I mean, in, in, you cannot imagine a market economy as opposed to specific markets without economic theory the economic theory justifying that kind of society. And it goes back to Adam Smith and, and the justification um, for the invisible hand. Um, and therefore, economics is implicated in both the successes and the failures of the market economy. Now, it's very happy to take credit for the successes, but where you get palpable failures of the market economy, um, it tends to say, I'm, I'm using it, the paid-up economist, and no doubt 
that is one of the defences. You know, there are all the disagreements about all these things. You're only dealing with a vulgarised version of economic. All these defences go back centuries, by the way, ever since Adam Smith started the debate. But they tend to say that the failures are due to either misunderstandings of the theory um, by policymakers or other or political interferences of one of one kind or another. Therefore, I mean, take a concrete example. Economists of the Chicago School, and I have a chapter and verse of of Eugene Farmer on this, who got a Nobel Prize last year, um, blame the economic and the financial crisis essentially on um, government interference in the working of financial markets. Of one form or another, either because they were over-regulated or because they wanted, in America, uh, finan- uh, you know, a certain kinds of financial mortgage markets to achieve certain social goals and so on. So the predatory lending, which um, everyone understands to have been uh, a major um, factor in, 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 in the collapse of the financial system, particularly the housing market, was actually government-led. They, they told they told certain mortgage companies to achieve a certain type, a certain level of house ownership and lend, and lend enough money um, for that to be appropriate. So you always get this defence going on. And uh, to my mind, I think it's um, dishonest, actually. Um, I think a lot of economic theory is wrong in its policy implications. I think there are versions um, of, of economic theory which are indestructible. Um, I mean, they're logically very sound, but you must not treat those logical constructs as a secure guide to policy. And that's all. One, that's all I'm saying, really. And, and I'm not denying any. You know, I'm not denying. I agree with a lot of what you, Diane said, and especially in the latter part of her talk. Thank you. Would any of the panelists like? Yes. Um, very, very thoughtful comments on, on my comments. Um, I'd like to say, Edward, I think I'm more of a Democrat than you are. Um, that most of the three billion people who've got mobile phones don't come from the kind of information-rich environment that we do with fixed-line telephones and access to libraries and good connections to the job market. And um, I think most people who use mobiles would very much disagree with you about that. So I'd like to see you put your proposal about that technology to the ballot box. I think people are also very clear about the difference between their consumer preferences and their citizen preferences. And I have evidence of this in broadcasting, which I know a fair bit about. And Ofcom regularly surveys people about the kind of programmes they want to watch and the kind of programmes they think ought to be on the television. And they're different. They want to watch the sport and the soaps, and they think there ought to be news and current affairs and worthy children's programming and so on. And that's why there's very strong support for public intervention in broadcasting. So I think people are also just not as easily misled into thinking everything has to be marketised. And actually, we are quite, are quite clear about those distinctions. Um, Eugene Farmer's out in Lynn. I think um, most economists I know, and certainly most honest economists, um, will admit that economics had drunk the Kool-Aid before the financial crisis, and we have to own up to that. Completely agree with you about that. 
Can I just add a further thing about mobile phones? I might be getting up on a tangent on, but, but um, I think it emphasises that what I was talking about in, about context um, and in developing well and, 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 and develop well. Um, mobile phones in, in places like Bangladesh uh, have made a huge impact. Um, they've been giving a, a community, rural communities of one mobile, solar-powered mobile phone, set up flood defence systems, uh, communications about medical supplies across villages, etc., etc., and Africa as well. But it's, so the marginal effect could be massive in that sort of context, perhaps less so uh, in, in our society. So I think one has to look very carefully about where we're, what we're talking about and where. Tom, do you want to have a quick word and then I'll go to the audience? Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, just very briefly, uh, I think economics does have an issue, does have a problem, about whether its mod fundamental model of economic behaviour is right or not. Now, that's something which I think is a very important issue to address. We do have an enormous amount of economic theory, which is all based on, really, the rational choice theory. That's, that's at the root of it. And there has to be a question as whether empirically that works. So that doesn't seem to me to be a philosophical issue. That seems to me to be an issue of how do we do social science better to find out whether this thing works or not. I think the, the, the main area where I have concerns about economics is very much what I call the imperialism of economics the desire for economics to go into absolutely every part of human life and kind of colonise it. And there I think I would entirely agree with the Skidelskys that uh, that shouldn't happen. In other words, that somehow we need to put, we need to put a kind of a, a ring round economics and say, well, this is what it's good at and here are whole lots of other things which they're not good at. And personally, my view is that the way in which economics has gone into the whole area of human relationships, and in particular into marriage and divorce, I think that's just a mistake. Um, but there are many economists who would say, actually, it does predict behaviour in the marriage and divorce market rather well. But I also think that there's a problem that as soon as economics colonises an area, then that tends to become, uh, it's, very, it's a hegemony of, of, of the discipline. And I think on that, Skidelskys are right. I have to say, incidentally, that my comments were a bit tongue-in-cheek um, because I felt very defensive. Could I just ask one, one very quick question? Why do you think it's not a philosophic issue? Um, when you say economic, you, you could feel the fact that economics has gone into, into, into marriage and, 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 and personal relations. Um, and how, why isn't that... Why isn't that a philosophic mistake? It's not, it's not surely just an empirical mistake. I, I'm sorry. I should have made it, cl it clear. They're, they're two separate things. One is, if you actually want to look at the demand for potatoes or the demand for a financial asset, the question for me is, does economics have a good model for explaining those things? Does it or does it not? And that seems to me to be an empirical issue. When it comes to the issue of should economics become the all-encompassing explanation of human life and human social life, then I have, if that is a philosophic issue, and I do have very definite kind of frontiers that I would like to establish. Thank you. Um, I'm going to go to the two speakers from earlier for the first questions if they have in the time. <coughs> 
Let's just crystal ball again a bit on that question. Why, why exactly is there that frontier? So if, if, if as it were, economic models can predict um, empirically behaviour in, in the marriage market um, perfectly well, what is it that stops it being appropriate to use them there? And if so, why does that not... Why are, they, why are the same ethical and philosophical questions not also um, relevant to the human relations in in economic practices, you know, to buying and selling. Why is it that, um, uh, I mean, is it just a question of empirical a- accuracy, or is it that these areas are more moral than those areas, or is it what I mean? It seems to me that you might want to say they're different, but I can't see how you can draw such a hard frontier between the two from a from an ethical perspective, if that makes sense. Do you want to answer that? Any of you who want to pick up, that's fine. Would you like to come in on that now? It's pretty much addressed to you anyway. Yeah, okay. Um, Now, how am am I going to explain this? I think there are two dangers of of economics invading this area. Uh, And let's take the marriage and divorce case. Uh, And the the first concern I have is because, in the United States at least, it is completely reframed the way in which issues of marriage and divorce are encapsulated in the laws. Okay. So it's, it's completely changed the way that. Now, actually, I happen to believe in a very different concept of marriage. And I think it's a much better concept of marriage, which is not to do with bargaining between spouses to see who can get the biggest gains out of a particular relationship. And I think that the, the part of what's going on is actually economics becomes kind of instructive. I mean, it's, it's, it's very interesting. In they, do, they play these games, um, uh, kind of laboratory-type games with people. Um, and what they discover is that where they, these are games of conflict between the participants and so on, if you give that to a group of econ- economic students, they are really nasty to each other. Well, they tend to be much nastier to each other than if you give it to a group of theology students. All right? um, part of that is because we've been kind of, um, if you like, we've been brainwashed into thinking the right way to look about relationships is in terms of the cost-benefit analysis of gains and losses. So if you ask me, can I put down a, a specific barrier, the answer is I, I'm not quite sure how I do that, but I do regret the way in which it seems to me that uh, economics has kind of taken over things and has begun to provide, as it were, the ethical framework. Because is that not the Skidelsky's argument about, um, about what historically what has happened in buying and selling? It's that the same sort of co- um, purely competitive logic has come to dominate um, you know, when we produce food and when we exchange food and those... It's, it's, it, uh, sorry, yeah, I think that's the same sort of argument they're making. Yeah, just on this point, um, I think if you define economics as a universal science of rational choice, and if you have a very thin formalistic concept of rationality, then then it's very hard to prevent this imperialistic expansion of economics into other domains. I mean, well, why not have an economics of marriage and divorce? That's that's the problem. Um, uh, I mean, economics is not inherently limited to, to buying and selling. 
Yeah, and I think, I think, uh, sorry, could, before coming there, I think the, the uh, imperialism of economics, of course, affects the students who um, study the subject. They become more like economists in the course of their um, uh, degree. It's not just that they become more like economists, obviously, they learn more economics, they actually become more selfish. Um, and and their studies have shown this, okay. that, that um, <laughs> after, so they're, they're this is uh, the point you've just made, that economics is instructive. And I think that's crucially omitted uh, because it comes into the shaping of preferences. Um, it's always, it's always um, thought of as um, a non... I mean, you know, it, it excludes value judgments as, 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 um, <coughs> as, as, as it's presented, but actually it affects the values of the people who not only study economics, but are subject to the, the economic processes um, that occur. Diane, do you want to have the last word on this? And then we have a question in the front row. I have two questions in the front row. I'm not sure it's true that societies have become more selfish since the dawn of economics and the publication of, of the wealth of nations. So I think I would have an empirical question about that. The problem is... Is the, is the claim of preeminence, isn't it? It's perfectly valid to have an economics of what happens in the marriage market and to observe that uh, well-off people select each other, so that's one of the forces driving income inequality. Perfectly valid economic point to make, but it's the claim that that is the most important way to analyse marriage that, that's, a, that's the problem. And, and economists need to be much better at acknowledging the relevance of other social sciences. When it comes to market transactions, economics is definitely the dominant one, but there ought to be a sociology of markets as well. Can I just add two, does that work? Two points to that. Uh, I think, for, first, it's important to use the word selfish rational actor theory in describing what some economists, not all, but some do. And so the analysis of marriage becomes exactly like the analysis of the babysitting cooperative. And a, a rational calculation is, should I get married to someone who will help me go through a medical degree and when I finish, divorce that person? Uh, and that's how you would do a calculation like that, in that way. And that's, many people, including many economists, think that that is an inappropriate way to analyse either the babysitting cooperative or marriage or most other social phenomenon, the kind that Michael Sandel talks about in his book. The second thing to say is that not all economists are apologists for an order in the way that um, Robert Skidelsky was saying. I began working with James Mead, who began his life working with Keynes, whose purpose was to try and understand what had gone wrong, not to apologise for the gold standard and the failings of capitalism in the 30s, but to devise policies to correct it and to fast forward to the modern world, whatever you might think about the specific conclusions of the Vickers report on banking in this country, it was to find out what went wrong and to propose things that would prevent such failures happening again in the future. It's important to recognise some sociology, there are apologists and there are critics within any one discipline which will be true in all social sciences. 
you know, we, we, we distinguish between, I think it's very necessary in any social science to distinguish between the mainstream and, and, and the deviations. I think the mainstream has become, of economics has become much more uh, protective of the market than it was when you were, and you were learning economics as an undergrad. I think, and, 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 and indeed, um, in, in your professional career, and I think that's got to be explained. Now, I mean, people have tried to, tried to understand that, whether it's due to uh, increased mathematization, but I think it's, it's not just maths. It's actually, there's been a shift in ideology which, which economics has partly led and partly been affected by. Thank you. Uh, two thoughts. Um, one is going back to mobile phones yet again and the issue of technology. My instincts are always rather luddite on things like mobile phones. I'm not, I'm not particularly competent with the technology. But it does seem to me that there's First of all, a more or less inevitable element of problem solving has a trajectory in its own right. You solve a particular technical problem, you create another one. Intellectual interest in energy as well as economic pressure suggests you go on to solve another problem. And it's all part of a generalized uh, hope that you will have increased control over your environment. For those of us who already have a great deal of control over our environment, it can look and feel very much like an unnecessary refinement um, which doesn't make a huge difference to our quality of life and that is how I feel about mobile phones in my immediate context if you start from a basis of not having very much control over your environment what mobile phone technology does is actually provide a set of unexpected goods for which help to redress balances of inequity and injustice um, banking through mobile phones in Kenya, which is already been referred to. Um, the summoning almost overnight in New Zealand after the Christchurch earthquake of 5,000 student volunteers through uh, Facebook and Twitter and a very, very effective volunteering body assembled in that way. So my, my feeling is that as so often with technology, it's use that matters and what do we, what are we doing to educate people about use if mobile phones feel like an unnecessary luxury in this environment, well, maybe we should just help people stop using them in this context and say, you don't need them for this, and you do need them in other contexts. There's nothing about the technology itself that is moral or non moral, I suspect. My second point is, is about the um, why do certain models look all right with potatoes and not all right with spouses? Um, and I suspect, again, we, we've got a spectrum here of areas where it's pretty clear that value is convertible. You know, one thing can stand in for another without too much difficulty. And there are areas at the other end where it's pretty clear that one thing can't stand in for another without, without any problem or difficulty. And a lot of our unease, I think, in the discussion has been exactly where do we draw that line. And I think the next uh, subject sent in a queue is a very good instance of something that, that's a bit on the wall. I don't think it's quite as clear as Diana suggests that it's immediately the same as some other services provided. But why not? And I, that's my instinctive response, but I do have to say, and why not? So a spectrum, which has to do with this business of convertibility, which 
that Marx was the fundamental economic question in a sense. Um, what, what things are convertible, and what things can be exchanged for others. And where is that a, a non-appropriate model to approach your relations with? Is your question still on the same? Well, no, not quite. Not quite, perhaps we can. Uh, would, any, would anybody like to that one? <laughs> <laughs> Go back to mobile phones again. <laughs> Maybe we're getting bored of this. Um, I, I think there have been unexpected benefits. Um, you're quite right. Uh, there have also been some unexpected costs, one of which is the expectation now with mobile phones and also Blackberries and iPads that um, one should be available at all times um, uh, um, you know, uh, for professional purposes. And this has, I think, led to an expansion of work or an encroachment of work into leisure time, which is not something that people you know, predicted when, when these things were first invented. So I agree. I, I don't think that you know, they're, they're inherently you know, pernicious, but... Um, we shouldn't assume that they're inherently beneficial either. We have to just look at them case by case. And, and just uh, one addition. I, I think the distinction you made down between more and better is a very important one. Um, I mean, uh, but it's fuzzy at the same time. Uh, I know. I know. One of the one of the arguments is that GDP doesn't capture the enhancement in quality that's going on the whole time. Um, through, through, through inventions which uh, simply create consumer surplus. But um, I'd like to, I'd like to, I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit sceptical about how much consumer surplus is being created. Um, I think that's very, very hard to get a handle on there. And that's why we stick to our own GDP. As your chairman, can I just interject here and abuse my, um, my role? Um, there are many ways of writing history, and one of them would be the history of disruptive technologies and how societies have adapted to them. And if it's at all reassuring to mobile phone computers, of which I'm close to being one, um, there is already a pushback. There are already books being written uh, for uh, company directors about how they should unleash the creative power of their their employees by not requiring them to answer their mobile phones at three in the morning. So, you know, life has a way of, uh, of responding to this. Sorry, did uh, one of the panel want to respond? I was going to talk about incommensurability, but we can go to the audience yeah. rather. Shall we gather a couple of thoughts from the audience, because various people have been waiting. Well, I wonder about the panel picture, but phenomenon is beginning to worry me, really. And, and that's the use of free goods. I mean, the fact that um, Facebook and Google charge you nothing. Uh, and they make the money, of course, from advertising. And uh, the more people they can collect, so they don't care a damn about you. They just want you as a number. So they're prepared to pay $19 billion for WhatsApp uh, because it has 450 million subscribers. WhatsApp and said they don't believe in advertising, but I just wonder what's going to happen. And uh, I mean, where does the market come in to this with all these free things that are swishing around and people making money not from you but just from collecting your film number? Shall we gather another one and come back then? It's not such a question as a session. 
the other thing that I find <coughs> to say about technology is to do with, with Facebook and Google and Twitter and things like that, that they have a huge impact on what you call in the book personality. And I really like the term personality as opposed to comedy. I thought it was much more human-centered. The impact that that has, particularly on people, young people, people under the age of 30, who I have worked quite a lot with, um, they actually feel that you know these things are appendages to their life. They are actually part of them. So when they're on, you know, their their, their Facebook page is not somehow an extension. You know, it's, it's an extension of their personality. It's not actually a representation of them. It's actually embedded in who they are. And they, they do watch many of them, you know, they constantly update their page and they look at other people and, the, and this is not really a mirror, it's actually part of them. And it, it does have quite a profound impact on, I mean, it's more of an observation, what, for me, I'm quite, quite a worrying observation, but um, to do with sort of what, what we feel as human, who we feel as human, we are as actually human beings. Any response from the panel? Shall we go on some more? Could I just respond to um, um, uh, Charles Hand? The um, microphone. Yes, yeah, sorry. Um, you see, on, I mean, I find a defect in, in, in the way economists think about things that they haven't any real language for describing um, advertising except as, <laughs> as an information system, basically. Um, now, um, that seems, I mean, it just makes you aware of the existence of things which otherwise you wouldn't have been aware of. And of course, in Facebook and others, I mean, it's free, but you're constantly told about other things that um, you might want um, uh, the, uh, and that you should buy. And once more, if you ever order any one particular thing, then you never, you, you're never free of this um, uh, cascade of suggestions that pours out each day. In, in, in a way, I, I sort of uh, now don't use a lot of these things. I don't want to um, um, be told about all these things. But it's, it's surely a defect of economics that it has to see um, advertising as an information system, which simply, um, it doesn't shape preferences, it doesn't persuade, um, it doesn't indoctrinate, it doesn't do all the sort of bad things that a liberal might, um, uh, things a liberal might object to. It just enlarges your information set. Now, that seems to me quite inadequate, um, an inadequate language to dis in which to discuss the impact of, of, of advertising. Can I follow yeah. up yeah. All technologies, of course, throughout history have caused disruption, both to the jobs that people have, but also to social relations and how, how people feel as well. And our social institutions and norms take a very long time to catch up with technology, and this is certainly happening with all the, all the, um, the online technologies as well. Uh, I, I completely agree that thinking about advertising just as an expanded information set is inadequate, and I think behavioural economics is now quite quickly coming to the point of thinking about how advertising does shape preferences and and how people make their decisions. Mm. And there's a whole interesting set of empirical questions which you referred to about when can you apply selfish rational choice theory to decision-making and when actually do you need to think about um, other modes of, of decision-making, the, the whole fast and slow thinking business. Just one word on, on 
incommensurability, which I think is a really interesting question. And a lot of economists would say, in the end, you can think about it however you like, but you have to turn everything into, into money to be able to make any comparisons or, or public policy decisions. And I'm, I'm just not sure that I do agree with that. There is a, a political science concept of public value, which says you have to keep them under separate headings and, of course, bring to bear all the evidence, evidence that you can and set out how you make that decision, but actually you don't need to convert them into each other. And I think that's a useful alternative mm-hmm. approach in some contexts. Knowing the price of everything, the value of nothing. Do you want to come back on this one, or shall you gather some more questions? Gather some. I um, I wanted to add uh, a perhaps more robust uh, defence of economics than, than Dole quite wanted to. I completely agree with uh, the well-trodden correlation between GDP growth and broader welfare measures. Indeed. You may well know on the UNDP, on the UN Development Programme's website, they're called Gapminder, you can find a whole long presentation for policymakers about the interaction between GDP growth and infant mortality reduction and, uh, and other benefits. But the hegemony of economics, even as regards marriage markets, I wonder when economics, when economists try and, and do different things. This is competition for ideas. This is people putting new work out. But then one must ask ourselves, why is it that economics becomes, or seems to become dominant, have influence? And I wonder actually if the authors agree with me, as, as they point out in the book. One of the disciplines economics brings is that it's rigorous. Do people not really think that when, when aristocrats were thinking who would be a good suitor for their daughter to think about how power would work out and money, they weren't playing some sort of game theory and thinking about where the benefits would lie, clearly they were, and economics just brings that out, is robust and is, and is very, very clear, it's then something that people can latch onto, it, it's a, it's a defence against too much vacuousness, if you'll forgive the, the word, you know, too much talk for talk's sake, and uh, maybe that's where its benefit comes from, and then people come into it. And where I think the authors might agree with me is, it was in, in the book that they said, the problem here is perhaps, where is sociology? Where is philosophy? Why is it that they have retreated from public discourse? I think you, I forget now, I have the quote in, in my slide, but something about the way you started just splitting hairs. I forget the quote, perhaps you'll remember what you wrote. It, it seemed very pertinent. <laughs> Yeah, I think the, the, the appeal of economics uh, lies largely in, its, in the fact that it's reductive and universalistic. Um, and, you know, if, if we think of physics as the, the model science, economics of all the social sciences seems to approximate most closely to physics. And that gives it its, its cultural power and prestige. Um, but, of course, I, I mean, I, I would say that actually that, that kind of explanation isn't appropriate in many of these cases. What we want is a more descriptive... <coughs> You know, localized explanation. Um, uh, I mean, more reductive doesn't necessarily mean better. Um, so, um, but that's that's our that's the dominant model of science, um, which I think accounts for the, the, the power of economics. Um, yes, uh, <coughs> the you've made a very good point, and your 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 um, your um, uh, a recollection of what we said in in, in our book is, is correct we said that the power of economics um, rests partly on the weakness of its, say, competitor discipline. And um, 
I think we singled out the weakness of philosophy, or modern philosophy, um, because it doesn't answer the questions or deal with the questions people are really interested in. And, um, uh, I mean, and, and, and I think um, and that's quite hard. I mean, philosophy is very rigorous. So it doesn't suffer by comparison with economics and rigor, but it's become very narrow and specialized. And when you have, um, when you have a growing specialization of different disciplines, um, so they become accessible only to uh, professional practitioners. Then a discipline that um, promises universal measurability obviously has a great deal of attraction. It is the breakout of the special specialism. So I think that 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 helps explain. Right. I understand that. I mean, I think that within any, any discipline, there's a reductionist dimension to it. When you're, and I'm thinking particularly of young people thinking when you're studying economics and undergraduate, it, do, it does shape the way you think. There's no question about that. And it does bring rigour of a certain kind. Um, but, but it also, how one then matures and, 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 and relates other aspects of your thinking to that, I think is a big challenge. I think it's one of the things that you, you said in the book about young people, that you talk about young people studying economics, that you could apply it to lots of other disciplines as well. And how does one become wise... Uh, and utilise that rigour that you're also learning. I think that's a really big challenge for economics, but for other disciplines as well. So I really have to make a plea for philosophy. <laughs> so, so thinking about it for no more than five seconds, here is a list of all the areas in which contemporary moral and political philosophers are currently working, not just in academia, actually, but on other embodiments. The ethics of reproduction, the ethics of war, the ethics of peace, the ethics of climate change, the theoretical foundations of democracy you know, in general. These are just some of the areas in which philosophers are currently working. Not just in academia, but on bodies as diverse as the Murphy Council for Bioethics, ethics committees in hospitals, Chasm House in London, which does an enormous amount of work on precisely security, international relations, and so on and so forth. Military academies, the list goes on and on and on and on. To say that philosophy has become utterly narrow and specialized is a completely inaccurate reflection of what it is that philosophers do. Now, and here, I'm not going to use the they you know, anymore. I will use the pronoun we. We have not deliberately retreated from public life. Many of us are thoroughly engaged with public life, and we do wish that actually elected politicians would call upon us much more often than they currently do. It is not a choice that we are making not to visit Downing Street. It is that we are not actually asked to do it. Although I should say that some of my colleagues have, on more than one occasion, visited number 10 in Downing Street. Thank you. Yes, there's there's always a lag um, in, in in reputation, and you have to wait some time um, before you really um, are in a position to say whether well, current ferment at, the, at at many of the borders of the of the discipline are actually going to um, uh, uh, constitute its mainstream. Um, as, as time goes on. I think that's true in economics. I mean, there is a mainstream. Textbooks take years to revise. 
there are, there are, there are, there are standard courses in economics, and they haven't changed very much um, over the last few years. Um, but there is a lot of work going on on the edges. And uh, people, you know, behavioral economics is a big growth area, but, you know, neuro neurological economics. I mean, there are lots of things happening, but they haven't penetrated yet. Whether they will penetrate in the end and shake shake the core to its foundations is still to be seen. And, and, uh, and I think that's true in philosophy. I think, I mean, Edward, I mean, I think, I don't know whether you were really, God, we're, we're, we're now blaming each other for our remark. <laughs> <laughs> but you have first-hand experience of teaching a philosophy department. And I don't know, maybe, maybe we over, uh, under, undersold philosophy and well, the strengths I, of philosophy. I mean, of course, many philosophers are very active on public bodies and so forth, but it, it's, it's clearly not hegemonic in the way that economics is. Um, and one of the indications of that is that every, everyone feels a desire to, to attack economics uh, and its, 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 its assumptions of rationality and so forth. It's, uh, it arouses immense anger and resentment and a sense of impotence in people. Uh, no, no one feels this way about philosophy. But it's, that's a good thing. It's simply it's ignored. It's a of philosophy it's... that it doesn't try to be hegemonic. You need <laughs> I think at, at this point uh, we have to draw it to a close just because it's lunchtime. I spent 30 years sitting every Monday morning in a room uh, full of economists and they argued and they yelled at each other and they also had a very good time. So, uh, <laughs> and there were philosophers and others among them. Um, it's a very rich debate. Thank you all the panellists for a, a terrific set of contributions and uh, please thank them.